Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Some in official Washington called this the summer of recovery, but it's hard to prove across real America. The national economy is limping amid fears of a double-dip recession. Uncertainty abounds. Jobs are scarce, consumer confidence is low, companies are hoarding cash, and lenders are in an extend-and-pretend mode with many of their commercial borrowers. Meanwhile, warning bells are ringing. Earlier this year, the Congressional Oversight Panel, the TARP Oversight Committee chaired by Elizabeth Warren, expressed concern that a wave of commercial real estate loan losses over the next three years could jeopardize the stability of many banks, particularly community banks. Commercial real estate loans made over the last decade including retail properties, office space, industrial facilities, hotels, and apartments, totaling $1.4 trillion, will require refinancing from 2011 through 2014. Nearly half are presently underwater. While these problems have no single cause, the loans most likely to fail are those made at the height of the real estate bubble. The panel found that a significant wave of commercial mortgage defaults would trigger economic damage that could touch the lives of nearly every American. When commercial properties fail, it creates a downward spiral of economic contraction. Job losses, deteriorating storefronts, empty office buildings and apartments, and the failure of the banks serving those communities. Because community banks play a critical role in financing the small businesses that could help the American economy create new jobs, their widespread failure could disrupt local communities, undermining the economic recovery and extend an already painful recession. And a new report by the Corporate Advisory and Restructuring Services Group at Grant Thornton further warns that the benefits from a recovery, if we really have one, won't likely be distributed evenly, that we shouldn't expect a rising tide to lift all boats. With me to discuss uh, this outlook are two of the authors of the Grant Thornton White Paper, Paul Melville and Sandy Reese. Each is a principal in the Chicago office of Grant Thornton. Welcome, Paul and Sandy, to ABI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Well, so let me first start with what happens when all of this uh, commercial real estate debt comes due over the next a two to three years, where's the where's the refinancing going to come from? I think, Sam, the answer to that question, simply stated, is it depends upon, um, in large part, who holds the debt, because that will drive sort of the motivations of the uh, participant who holds the debt. And obviously, the answer to that question is somewhat influenced by the property type as well as the market. So if you look at sort of Who holds the debt? I mean, there are three large buckets and categories. Um, You've got the commercial banks, as you alluded to earlier, who hold 45 to 50 percent of all the debt. You've got the CMBS market, which is a combination of public and private investors who hold the next 20 percent. And then you've got the the remaining bits and pieces hold by um, insurance companies, REITs, and other types of investors. So, Simply stated, I think the answer to that question in large part depends upon, as I said before, who holds the debt. 
Um, so I think you'll see, it, and again, based upon the property type in the market, Paul, I don't know if you want to add on to that more specificity. No, I think I think I think Sam that the other thing that's going to happen is there's no doubt that some of that debt is going to get refinanced, but some of it is going to get kicked down the road. And I would just echo Sandy's point: you've really got to look at the underlying asset class and the lender and what their attitude is. Um, we know that certain of the banks have got more difficult internal problems than other banks. Um, no doubt there's going to be some private equity money that comes in and takes out certain certain assets and some of it get, gets refinanced of it, gets refinanced and some won't. I mean, some of that debt won't get refinanced, is, won't get refinanced and the assets will have to be liquidated. But it'll be, it'll be the point in time when hopefully the market is slightly better and therefore the return will be slightly better. The other thing, too, that I think is interesting to see what happens, as you alluded to, Sam, earlier, is um, what, what kind of regulatory environment will, will transpire over the next uh, year or so on what comes out of Washington. Um, because unlike some of the past recessions where um, the government really sort of, in some respects, one might argue, forced more of a foreclosure and liquidation scenarios, certainly what's happened this year from Washington would lead one to believe that banks certainly have more leeway in terms of extending the maturities out on many of these mortgages, both commercial as well as residential. Now, you both um, touched on the uh, possible distinctions based on the type of uh, real estate loan that we're talking about. So maybe let's go through some of those sectors uh, one by one, uh, which are most problematic uh, when it comes to the refinancing, whether it's uh, shopping centers and uh, shopping malls, uh, hotels, general office buildings, apartments, and multi other multifamily. Are, are there are there differences there? Are there some that are uh, that project to be weaker than others when it comes time to refi? Sam, the other thing I'd like to just to to, to add into that matrix is geograph geographical locations. Right. Well. Okay. That that is really important. So, for example, if you look at a hotel, um, it might be different. In, a, in an area like New York than it is in somewhere like, say, Louisiana, which has got its own particularly difficulties at the moment. So I think you've got to look at the asset class and the geographical location. We all know that um, domestic properties have got huge difficulties in, in, in areas like Florida and Las Vegas because of the way in which they were built. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that other assets have got problems. I think one of the areas that Stanley and I have seen a lot of is multifamily units. Okay. Um, have been extremely, extremely um, hard hit. Although there is a there is a, a train of thought that says, as the ability of people to buy their own homes and raise mortgages um, becomes more difficult, then the rental market will take off. And there's a there's a thought that says that some of the rental market will actually boom over the course of the next two to three years, as people decide whether or not. I really want to buy my own house anymore, and whether or not the American dream of owning your own house is going to go away or become less. And if it does, then that's going to create a, a potential good market for some multifamily units or some domestic properties. Um, and then you look at some um, office accommodation and you look at GSA-type accommodation, um, and that's, that's still relatively strong um, across a number of different areas, and, and the price is still pretty good, I think. Um, so... There's a number of different factors which don't just – you can't just say hotels are bad. You can't just say commercial real estate, um, shopping malls is, 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 is a poor investment. It depends where it is. 
And perhaps, Sandy, you can talk about shopping centres a little bit because you've had some experience there. Yeah, we've done a lot of in the retail space. I mean, certainly, um, if you look at the different types of, of property that Paul just alluded to, certainly, simplistically stated, the office and industrial space have been the hardest hit and had the highest delinquency, certainly in the um, mid to high double digits. Um, with respect to the retail space, you know, they've, they've had about, on average, a 10% default rate um, over, the, over, the, over the course of uh, the last year. And certainly some might argue that um, potentially some of the retail spaces are maybe bottoming and leveling out um, with some of the new CMBS issuances that have been issued this year. The five of them have all been in the retail space. Um, certainly what we've seen, again, to highlight some of what Paul said, is that it, based upon where the property is located and the type of shopping center, whether it's a tier one, two, three, or four, and the cash flow and tenant mixes really impact um, the abilities of those shopping centers certainly to not only service existing debt, but to begin to think about what might happen to those properties down the road. Um, so we've definitely seen that for the, many of those shopping centers that had, say, one large anchor tenor and, and the, 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 best, the rest of the tenants were primarily in line, those have been harder hit than by retail shopping complexes on the coast that have, um, you know, have great, a great tenant profile and several large anchor tenants. Um, in the in the space, Sam. How how much uh, a part of the calculation is uh, what's going on in the in the consumer spending uh, sector? I mean, I, consumers are essentially uh, on strike um, in, in terms of um, the, the same kind of consumer spending which we rely on to drive uh, the national economy. Uh, savings rates are up, and a lot of these things are obviously good. From the household's uh, their own balance sheet uh, perspective, but but can't that affect uh, the outlook for shopping centers and malls across all tiers? Well, I, I guess I'd have a couple of things. I mean, the short answer to your question is absolutely. And again, it depends upon the tier type of the shopping complex and center that you're talking about, the specific market, and the makeup of the. Um, tenant profile and, and the configuration of the space. But having said that, Sam, I mean, certainly there's an impact on, cons you know, because of the consumers and the fact that their spending has been reduced significantly. But like in, in many businesses, um, certainly the market has been reacting to that. And so what I mean by that is that many of the operators have gone in to really understand their tenant profile. They're less... Um, aggressive in terms of the type of tenants that they're willing to accept into the properties. Um, lenders themselves are restructuring loan profiles rather than lending at, say, what might have been a 75% uh, LTV in the past. They're, they're certainly reducing that risk profile. So I guess the short story is that the owners and the borrowers of these properties are making adjustments uh, we've seen proactive adjustments to respond to a lower consumer spend. And as I said before, it really gets back to uh, the product location, the shopping location, and, and the, the, the makeup, the retail tenants within these properties that really will drive the cash flows and therefore the property values in the long-term viability. Well, I think, Sam, Sunday's hit on a couple of, of, of points there. One is, clearly, people have got to go out. And, and spend money. You've got to have footfall in shopping centres, and if footfall's down, that drives that drives revenue at the uh, at the at the, uh, the retail level. And a lot of those um, uh, tenants have rents based on based on um, revenue, so clearly they'll be down. And I think, but I think as well, there's a recognition amongst lenders 
and funders that we have to keep the lights on in some of these buildings. And it's, you, you, some of these big shopping malls and strip malls, you have to have tenants. Tenants attract tenants. And therefore, in some cases, there's deals being cut that wouldn't, you wouldn't have dreamed of cutting five or ten years ago, principally just to keep the lights on because the cost of having empty space is, is horrendous. Um, and just keeping some sort of level of interest payment or perhaps, if you're really lucky, some principal payments mm-hmm. just, to keep the, just to keep the lights on and keep that building occupied. Um, because as soon as the lights go dark, it becomes extremely difficult in this competitive market to get to attract another tenant in there because there's lots of other places they can go. And, and to just to drive home that point further, not only are there lots of other places to go, but certainly what we've seen in many of these markets, Sam, is that there were, you know, there was so much capacity and there was so much out there on the market. Um, to Paul's point that, you know, you have to really look at those locations that will survive with tenants where there may be comparable tenants two or three miles down the road, and that's also been a complicating factor to understanding sort of the cash flowing of the properties and where you invest or where you contend to make improvements. All right. So you sense overall a, a more realistic approach by the lenders, particularly in the retail space? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. It's not over, but we, we certainly are seeing a new paradigm out in the market. Okay. Okay. Now, you noted in uh, your paper that an improvement in the real estate market typically lags the general economy by... 12 to 18 months. Now, why, why is that? Well, I think, Sam, the benefits, we just, as we just talked about, the retail, the real estate economy, the commercial real estate economy, really is driven by consumers uh, in terms of if you look at the shopping mall we just talked about, if you look at the, their willingness to invest in, in, in assets, if you look at, um, we've just talked about multifamily units. And so people are going to have to feel more confident that, that things have improved and there is light at the end of the tunnel and the market is getting better before they start to invest in commercial real estate because a lot of the investments in commercial real estate are investments that are there to produce a return. So therefore, people are going to have to feel comfortable that actually the ship has turned, things are getting better, and therefore commercial real estate is something that that should be looked at as being, being invested. And therefore, they're going to want to see and some green shoots of recovery before they take that step. That's why often that there's that 12 to 18 months lag because people want to see things are improving before they dive into commercial real estate because once you're in, it's an asset which once you've invested in it, you can't flip it very quickly. It's, it's, a, it's a longer-term asset. So therefore, people want to see that, that there's been some upshoots um, before they invest in it generally. I agree absolutely, Sam. I mean, the general overlay is the economic environment within the U.S. and to some extent globally. I guess there's a couple of other things, as Paul alluded to, and and this is really about, in many respects, not only just economics, but classic demand and supply. And so, as Paul alluded to, um, I think there's a couple of other reasons why it lags by this 12 to 18 months. He talked, Paul talked about um, the long-term leases in place. And certainly, particularly in the retail and some of the office industrial environment, many of these tenants are under long-term leases. And so, you know, if, if they had the ability to make their rental payments and wanted to think about keeping their businesses alive, of course, they would continue to do that as long as possible. Um, so there was this natural inclination to keep the business afloat and continue to meet the obligations under the long-term lease. Obviously, at some point in time, if the business itself isn't viable, and it, it, it falls short of making its, in making its uh, rental payments, then obviously 
um, that sort of puts the, the property in jeopardy. So really this whole notion about you can't just quickly flip this and the fact that there's long-term leases certainly creates a lag effect. Um, I think the other thing is that, you know, many of these projects when the economy started going south were in a developmental phase, certainly the ones uh, that we saw being held by local community banks. And so they were still lending, thinking that we needed to complete the project. But what happened is that there was a point in time where they recognized that the supply of these properties and what was happening wasn't going to be filled, and therefore the borrowing spigot, if you will, was turned off. And I think lastly, this, this issue of sh- what, what we, we call a shadow inventory is, is huge because what we've seen in a lot of these places is that there will be tenants that will move out. And so the natural inclination will be for these borrowers and property managers, certainly whether it's retail space or multifamily, is to lease out existing units. Sam, those statistics don't even appear in the vacancy numbers that are reported. And so that also has an impact in terms of the overall economy because you won't see a change in the vacancy rates, you know, change and decline until some of that shadow inventory is released. Mm-hmm. Got it. You also suggest in the paper that the benefits from a recovery don't necessarily distribute evenly among industry players and that the pre-recession performance, if you will, isn't necessarily a predictor of, of what's to come. Why, why is that the case? I think, I think if you go back to the question, that you, the question that you first started about is which are the asset classes which, are gonna, which, which suffer the most or the least and where they're located. The star performers you go into a, into a difficult period like we've just had, you need to look at what their asset portfolio is and where it's, where it's located. They might be a star performer, and a lot of their assets are in, let's just say, as we talked to earlier about, say, in Florida or in the Midwest, in Detroit area, in an industrial, in industrial location. And all of a sudden, what was really good pre-recession becomes really bad. So you have to look at what the asset class is, in my mind, where the, what the asset class is and where the location is, because that will help you determine whether or not, as a, as a general rule, how those are going to perform as they come out. And then you have to look at some of the underlying issues around the business. How's it structured? What's its manage, what's it management team look like? What's its debt coverage? All the day-to-day operational issues that make a company viable and profitable, really. But I think there's nothing in this industry that is key fundamentals is asset class and location. If you've got those, you can perform very well in in, in the height of the good times with, with assets that are in that, that, that in bad times, all of a sudden people say, well, why did you buy that asset there? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think also, too, Sam, beyond asset class and location is that you've got an element about who really is owning and operating these properties. And I think certainly what happened in the, the post-recessionary environment in terms of the types of investors who were acquiring, developing these properties was very different than what we had seen before. And so I think part of the answer to this question, in our, uh, I mean, our, our research was largely centered on, on large publicly traded REITs, but if you just look in the broader commercial real estate sense, I think we, we're coming off an environment where the lenders um, – underestimated the risk profile to whom they were lending, both in terms of they were making loans to entrepreneurs and developers that were less experienced perhaps than what might be an acceptable risk 
profile, certainly in today's environment, and they were backing owners, developers, property managers who they themselves were stretched thin or had weak balance sheets. So it was a combination of a perfect storm that if you don't have the quite, you know, asset class and location, and then you combine that with a poorly, you know, a poor management team, inexperienced managers, and certainly those with uh, little capital by which to, you know, come through a downturn, meaning reduced rental income streams, um, that really just added to this this loss. Right. Yeah, and Sam, one of the phrases that Sandy and I use is owner-operated is owner real estate companies, and we've seen a lot of those, particularly around the multifamily units, um, who've grown from, from one unit to two units to all of a sudden thousands of units. Um, they've really struggled, as Sandy said, because of the way in which the, the, the lenders were advancing money. There's a high high LTV values with therefore as soon as the as soon as the occupancy level start to drop, they're in they've got real cash flow difficulties. Right. And they probably haven't got the expertise in managing those properties and really working out what to do as some of the more um, professionally managed operators. Right. Um, and, and we've seen a number of those owner operators really, really struggle in the course of the last two to right. three years. Finally, unlike what happened during the 1975, you know, era in the 1980s and the, and, and the last commercial real estate demise, where the government really reinserted itself and cr- took a lot of measures to create demand, that again is another factor that's just not happening here. Okay, uh, you uh, you mentioned the decision by uh, by lenders, so maybe we can shift the focus uh, to that uh, sector for a minute uh, in terms of describing the effects on lenders uh, to these uh, CRE borrowers. We've already had over 100 more bank failures uh, this year, uh, particularly small and community-based banks. There are another 700-plus on the FDIC's problem list. Uh, Many of these smaller banks have never gone through the kind of stress test like the Wall Street banks uh, were by the TARP process. And Many are disproportionately exposed to CRE loan losses. So because of this, can we expect to see more uh, bank failures? And if so, what uh, might the effect be on local economies? I think, I, think, I think the answer to the question, Sam, the first one is yes, there will be more, more bank failures. I think you've just highlighted a number of banks that are on the FDIC watch list, and there's, there's no doubt that, that a proportion of those will not survive. Um, I think in terms of what the impact on the local economies will be, that's, that's a rather different question, really, um, because those loans are going to have to be worked out in somewhere, some shape or other. So someone somewhere will have to step in and support and manage out those portfolios. And the issue is, how will those portfolios be wound down over what time? And does someone take a view that, we can wind these down over a five-year period. We can wind them down over a 10-year period. Um, and Sandy and I have seen auctions of, 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 of banks' portfolios, and there's no doubt that there are, there, are, there are private equity funds out there and hedge funds out there who are actively looking to buy distressed real estate with a view to winding it down and winding it out over a period of time. So I think that clearly there's going to be some distress within the community banks, and clearly I think the number of number on the watch list suggests there's going to be some some failures. I think that we may be quick to judge what the local effect. We may be quick to judge that that's going to be a bad thing for the local economy. I think that you're going to see 
um, some strategies from strategies in, uh, implemented that allow those assets to be wound down over a period of year, over a period of years. Really, so I'm not sure that the that it's going to see the fabric of America pulled to pieces because someone will come in and parties will come in and buy those assets and will have a plan to craft a return on those assets by a number of different mechanisms, really. And, Sam, I agree with everything that Paul just said. I might just add one other element in there. To me, I mean, I agree that certainly, you know, more banks are likely to fail. They'll be taken over, and I agree that there are investors out there who will come in, and once these loans are foreclosed, whether they're residential or commercial loans, someone will be willing to step in. To me, the question is, what will they be stepping into? Certainly those loans that are with residential mortgages and homes, um, you know, is one sort of different bucket as opposed to a commercial bucket. And those two buckets are very different than projects and communities that are incomplete. So, again, I think it, it really depends largely in terms of where the failures are in the, in the, in the communities and um, what's going on with the projects and the homes in those communities. To me, that will be the impact more so than the sheer failing of the institution itself. Okay. Well, let's uh, shift to what the implications might be for business bankruptcy filings, a uh, topic uh, near and dear to the hearts of our members. Uh, consumer filings are up uh, over 20% uh, this year, over 2009. Uh, but Chapter 11 filings in the first half of the year were actually down. Uh, so when all of this uh, comes to pass over the next uh, two to three years, are we going to see a wave of Chapter 11s, or will they get worked out outside of the bankruptcy process, do you think? To me, I think there's a couple of dynamics that will impact the answers to that question. And certainly if we had a crystal ball, Sam, we'd be in a different line of business here. But, I mean, certainly what we've seen so far is that, you know, first of all, many, many companies will embark on the bankruptcy path um, as, as a strategic option for the business. And so those, those, those decisions are really based around a couple of different dynamics. First of all, what is the income generating potential of these businesses? Um, so certainly we've seen situations on the multifamily side, on the office side, and the, and the retail side where bankruptcy was used as a strategic option um, for the debtors to basically um, divest themselves of situations and properties that they did not have an interest in long-term and as a mechanism to restructure those loans. Um, certainly, we've seen from a creditor perspective in those situations that, you know, the, the loan structures have changed, um, the special servicer rights have changed, um, and many other cash control mechanisms have been put in place. Um, so, again, I think that in large extent it depends upon, you know, the, the income ability of these different properties and and then the the decisions of the various debtors and their desire to really restructure these loans and and divest themselves of non core assets okay yeah i think i'd echo what Sunday said i think I think there will be some strategic filings um but I think there'll be a lot of um negotiations and workouts done that that never reach bankruptcy. Um, where the loans are restricted over a period of time, where certain assets are, di are divested, where there's change in the operational running of the business, um, where new management teams are brought in, where new property agents are brought in, um, and there'll be horse trading of assets. I, I think that'll happen. I think it's, as with, as with most sectors, Sam, I think strategically, companies will file for Chapter 11 because they see an advantage in the long term. 
and some will get worked out. I don't see a significant difference between real estate and a lot of the other sectors. Okay. So the workout of this kind of wall of debt that people talk about won't necessarily result in a, a big spike in, in Chapter 11 cases. I mean, it might be. It might, but I don't think that that's a guarantee. Got it. What's your advice, given all the uh, things we've talked about and all of the research that you've done uh, in the various sector, uh, what's your advice to commercial real estate companies uh, today, uh, whether in these specific asset classes or more generally? I think, I think the biggest piece of advice I think I would say is, is understand where your cash is, understand the cash needs of the business and understand how you can drive more cash out of the business and make sure you're taking those steps immediately. Um, and really, 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 I can't emphasize it enough, understand the assets, understand what's core, understand what generates cash, understand what doesn't generate cash. And if you can get rid of the non-generating cash asset, assets, get rid of them. And the ones that generate cash, maximize the cash you can drive out of them, really. I think what Paul is saying is stick to your knitting. That's far more important than trying to overread and, and react to the market. Don't be afraid to make and don't and don't be afraid to make tough decisions. Timeless and good advice uh, across all uh, businesses. I think <laughs> follow the cash. Uh, I appreciate it. We are out of time for today, but I want to thank uh, both Paul Melville and Sandy Reese of Grant Thornton and their advisory and restructuring services group for being with us today and for sharing your findings on this critical issue. Thanks, Sandy and Paul. And thank, thank you, Sam. And as always, we thank you for listening. There are more than 80 podcasts available on our website for listening or downloading with more added each month. You can access them at www.abi.org. Until next time, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day.